What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks, Melissa. I'm John Fort in for Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Stocks, boy, session highs going for the last two and a half hours, bouncing back after a few straight ugly days. So does that mean Santa has the all clear to bring his rally to Wall Street? And we're digging a little deeper into some key sectors to see where they might be headed in 2022. Semiconductors, airlines, and luxury goods, we've got them all covered. And a unique way to offset high food prices, ugly food. We will talk to the head of a company that specializes in saving and selling unloved fruits and vegetables. But we begin with the markets and Christina Partinevola. Well, that's right, John. We did have some three ugly days, the three biggest drop, or three-day drops in September. Uh, markets are higher with value, beating out growth right now. Let's talk about the S&P 500. You're seeing it up 68 points, Dow up over 500 points. And there's also some hope that maybe the Build Back Better bill may not be dead just yet. And that bodes well for clean energy technology. Think some infrastructure cash. So solar stocks are climbing higher, as well as the Invesco Solar ETF 10. And you can see that one is uh, in climbing up above 4%. And then you've got some other big movers in the solar uh, space. You've got Sunrun up 8%, SunPower up over 2%, and Enphase above 3%. And some of the biggest sector movers right now, energy, retail, airlines, casual diners and hotels, which kind of makes sense ahead of the holiday travel season. We have oil up well above 3%, was even close to 4%, and the yield on the 10-year is back above 1.4, testing that 1.5 level right now. And as far as movers go, check out Nike. Shares are up over 6% on an earnings beat. You can see that over 6% on that earnings beat that came out, beating the street's expectations. The retailer did see demand increase in its biggest market here in North America. Nike, the best performer in the Dow today. John, back over to you. Christina, thank you. Stocks, meanwhile, bouncing back from yesterday's sell-off, but higher for just the first time in four days. So should investors buy the rally here, or are we looking at a blue Christmas for stocks? My next guests differ in their opinions. Let's bring in Delano Saporu, New Street Advisors founder and CNBC contributor, and Jeff Crumpleman, Chief Investment Strategist at Mariner Wealth Advisors. Guys, welcome. Delano, um, there is a difference, to quote a favorite movie of mine, between mostly dead and all dead when it comes to Build Back Better. How much does that matter for these markets going forward? I think that matters a little bit. So I think the markets were kind of pricing in some some fresh cash, especially for infrastructure. Um, and you saw the re-rate that we've seen, especially with the new Omicron data showing, you know, investors are really seeing that there may not be as big of a slowdown um, when it comes to, you know, uh, the GDP growth. And that's a couple of big things that are playing as themes in the market. So I think the investors right now are trying to gauge what is happening in 2022. And that's why you're seeing these swings in the market. I think your highest conviction names right now, you probably want to look at putting cash in. If you're looking at what happened in the tech sector over the past month, we've, we've sold off uh, uh, quite a bit. Look at the consumer discretionary, sold off quite a bit. So investors can look to, to put cash to work in, in some of the high conviction names right now, John. Jeff, you say that you wouldn't be surprised to see a sizable correction in 2022. 
How much of that has to do with the concentration dependency, say, in the S&P 500 on just a handful of big tech names that have pretty healthy valuations at this point? Well, I, it's, it's based more on, I think, than just uh, the market uh, being led in a big way by, by you know, the largest of the large cap. I think there are three reasons why we look for a correction. One, we're just due. Uh, it's been over a year since we've had a 6% plus correction in the market, and we've had 80% cumulative gains over the last three years in the S&P, and it's dangerous to say it's different this time. It would just be un very unusual if you didn't have a correction. We're in the middle of a midterm election uh, cycle, and you, you tend to have greater downdrafts um, and, and a little bit of a, a more sober market in the first 10 months uh, of the year. And then finally, we have accelerating risks. We have really unknowns on the inflation front. We think it will be benign uh, and moderate, but, but there's a lot of unknowns on that front. You have a transitional year in policy, and all of those things, I think, add up to a likely intra-year correction. But don't get me wrong, we're still positive and do think that we'll have uh, further gains in the S&P, probably single-digit type gains uh, next year, but some bumps along the way, that's all. So, Donna, what, what are the catalysts you think? I wonder if there's something that happens in 2022 that changes the, the market's mindset or sentiment from shrugging off bad news to shrugging off good news. I mean, right now, so much of what seems to be driving the market is this idea that, oh, well, we can handle that. We can handle that, whether it is um, you know, legislation not getting passed, new Omicron variants. But are there benchmarks, things that you're looking for throughout the year that could shift that mindset? Um, there's a couple things. I, I think one of the areas that we mentioned earlier is inflation data. So obviously the inflation data, a lot of it's been priced in, but seeing that kind of steady over the next few months uh, is going to be very interesting to watch. Because I think the biggest area for companies that have to fight those cost pressures are going to see a lot of headwinds um, coming up in 2022. So those will be one of the areas. And I still think the Omicron variant, um, really just looking at the data, because as the data lags, we want to see more. Obviously, again, we're seeing spreading happening at a higher pace than past variants, but we're seeing you know lower cases when it comes to hospitalizations and deaths, which is a great thing. So those are the couple of headwinds that the markets are seeing right now. We understand what the Fed is doing at possibly raising rates, which will play a part um, in, in the growth and tech names, but that's, I think, pr pretty rarely priced in. But those are the areas of headwinds that investors have to be looking at and making sure that their portfolio is well diversified uh, to combat those things, John. Jeff, how are you going to be adjusting to inflation in 22, depending on how uh, you know, the Fed's actions have an impact on that? Well, right now, we, we think it's very important to have a balanced portfolio between growth and value and be exposed to both because we've seen wild swings, roller coaster type swings uh, amongst those two different types of, of stocks, those two camps. Um, and we also think it's important if you've gotten drift and because of these big gains, your 60-40 balanced portfolio, if you will, has, has drifted up to the 67-68% level, we would cut back to long-term strategic targets of, of that 60% level so that it does two things. One, it allows you to take advantage of and have the courage to take advantage of any kind of pullback because of maybe headline fears on the inflation or rate rise front. And it also, I think, guards against a panic or an urge to sell should we get some type uh, of, of pullback. So we think uh, balance is, is very important and, and hovering close to that long-term strategic allocation. All right. That should help investors strategize. Jeff Delano, thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you. Now, a news alert in the bond market right now. 20-year notes up for auction over to Rick Santelli at the CME. Rick. 
Yes, John, it was 20 billion 20 years and 2020's good vision into the psyche of investors because they ran for these 20 years. A plus, one of the most solid auctions I've graded in years. Let's go through it, shall we? As I said, 20 billion 20 years, the yield at the auction 1.942. The one issue market was trading around 1.96. Lower yield, higher price. That is a good thing. You could look at the intraday markets. They all dropped in yield, rose in price on the results of this auction. Uh, the bid to cover at 2.59, the second highest since they brought back the 20-year, which was in May of 2020. And if you look at the indirect, 64.8, second biggest. Everything else is a record. 20.8 on directs is an all-time record. And if we look at dealers, taking 14.3%, that is also a record. And 14.3% is the smallest. In this case, the smallest is a good thing because there's not many leftovers when the investors really hit that buffet of 20 years. And you could definitely see that these are areas that are now technically significant for dealers and for investors stepping up to the plate. John Fort, back to you. All right. A plus. Rick Santelli, thank you. Moving on now, the Omicron surge is sending people scrambling to get tested, leading to long lines, harder to find tests, and longer turnaround times. Now the Biden administration is stepping in with a plan to address some of these challenges. Meg Terrell joins us now with the latest. Meg? Hey, John. So we are expecting to hear from the president in just about an hour and a half. Meanwhile, uh, we do know some of the tenets of the plan in terms of testing include setting up more federal testing sites. That's going to begin in the New York City area, which we can tell for folks around here really, really needs it. Uh, they're also going to be purchasing 500 million rapid tests to make available for free to Americans uh, to order on a website starting in January. And they say they're going to use the Defense Production Act to accelerate production of these tests. But a lot of critics say these things are not going to help the demand in testing and the lack of supply right now. Uh, we just heard from Letitia James, the attorney general for New York, who sent a warning to a New York provider of testing uh, called LabQ Diagnostics, essentially saying that they're advertising a two-day turnaround time for results when really it's stretching to four days or more. And we actually talked with a customer who's, or a, a person who's waiting for those results for more than that amount of time. She called it absurd that they're waiting for so long. Now, rapid tests provide another option, but those are really hard to find in stores right now. And in fact, CNBC.com just reporting today, Walgreens is limiting rapid test purchases to four per customer. Um, we've talked with testing experts about what's happening with supply in that space, and we've seen it increase over the previous few months. In November, it was around 140 million tests uh, available uh, in that month. That's expected to get up by three to 300 million by March. Uh, but John, right now, heading into the holidays, they're calling it kind of a perfect storm of this testing demand and really not being able to be met. John? Ah, Meg, thanks. Yes, difficult, if not impossible to predict when uh, all these tests are going to be in demand when variants pop up like this. Now, another obstacle to expanding testing access is simply paperwork, scheduling appointments, processing insurance and personal information, and then delivering results. My next guest company provides the software allowing pharmacies and mobile testing vans to speed up all those extra steps around testing. Joining me now is Julie S.K. Eagle, founder and CEO of Dragonfly PhD. Julie, uh, thanks for being with me. Um, what are you seeing out there now with this latest demand in testing around Omicron, and what should we expect in the future? Well, 
I can't tell you what to expect in the future, but I've seen testing volume skyrocket. So just in the last week, we have four times what we had a few weeks ago. And I think some of the good news is that our software administers vaccines as well as tests. And we saw a big uptick in the number of vaccines administered in November and December. Um, I think one of the challenges for, for all of us is people who want to travel have different requirements depending upon the airline and the requirements day by day. So for example, over the weekend, we had a woman from France who was trying to fly home and she got to the airport and discovered that she needed a test that was within 24 hours and she had been told 72 hours. So she had to go back. She found one of our testing vans and retested and left. But um, it, it's a challenge across all fronts, uh, logistics, um, materials, and just getting people through this process. I just wonder if at this point we have a better visibility into what might be needed in the future. Because the first time, right, pre-Delta, we had tests being destroyed, rapid test inventories being destroyed, because there was kind of a sense, oh, we don't need those anymore. I think that's not happening anymore. But now with Omicron, we've seen this spike in demand again that's even outstripping the existing inventories of rapid tests. So does there need to be some level of ongoing government buying and even stockpiling in some cases of tests so that society, so that business can have some continuity expecting that there will be another variant in the future? Absolutely. I think you heard very early on in this process, uh, you know, um, the Rockefeller Foundation and many others talked about the importance of testing. And I have felt that we need to, as a, as a government, as a society, make as much testing available as quickly as possible. I think there was reticence at the beginning. I don't know where the hesitance derived from, but from a practical standpoint, that's really the best defense we have. So uh, frequent testing, daily testing. I think you see some great examples in industries like um, production studios, where very early on, we had three, 400 production studios doing daily testing on site. Hmm. We had a customer in LA who went on site to production studio um, outlets and um, filming locations. And she'd go there with a rapid test machine and run testing for an hour in the morning before filming started. Right. And that has carried on. So if you're a business, how do you plan ahead? Uh, you know, having resources, connections, contractors set up to come in and do testing when needed, uh, software that you need to have uh, in place to do that? What should, what should businesses do? Business should, businesses should be set up to create safe spaces, I think, for their workforce, and it's not that hard to do. Uh, we have clients who do, um, you know, we work both with the labs and with the testing providers, the medical professionals. And labs have produced um, outlets like mobile vans that have testing equipment inside that can produce and process a thousand tests an hour inside the van in 20 minutes they've got a result on a PCR test. So um, they've used those technologies in places like conventions, for example, outside of Atlanta, where they did testing on a, a frequent basis to get you know, eight, 10,000 people tested before they entered a facility. I think that there's, there's a lot that can be done. They just have to be prepared to, uh, to go for it 
and say, you know what, I'm going to stand up, take a leadership role and protect my work workforce. This is how to do it. We certainly have resources and people who have experience doing that. And we see pockets, as I mentioned, of, of industries where they've really sort of taken a, uh, you know, taken a leadership role in making mm. this happen. Well, hopefully we'll start to see more of those case studies. Uh, thank you, Julie S.K. Eagle. Sure. Now coming up, a massive bet on housing. Howard Hughes Corporation planning to build a community three times the size of Manhattan. The CEO joins us live to talk about the project, pricing and supply issues, and what he sees in store for the housing market in 2022. Plus, this luxury stock having a great year, up 75%, thanks in large part to one particular group of spenders. We will tell you who they are, why that trend is likely to continue, and the names poised to benefit most. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map with Nike, Boeing, and Disney, the top performers right now. The exchange is back after this. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. The supply of homes for sale just dropped to another record low in November, according to Redfin. But developers and home builders are now stepping up fast. Diana Olick joins us with the news of big growth in one major metro market and a special guest. Diana. John, Phoenix is one of the fastest growing markets in the nation with home prices there soaring due to very low supply. But the Howard Hughes Corporation just announced its purchase of 7,000 acres 30 miles outside the city for a master plan community of 100,000 homes and 55 million square feet of commercial space. Joining me now is the CEO of Howard Hughes, David O'Reilly. David, thanks so much for being here. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. I want to ask first, we see huge demand from both renters and buyers. What share of these 100,000 homes do you expect will end up as rentals or for for sale homes? Well, we think the vast majority of what we're developing will be for sale. And with 37,000 acres, this community is roughly three times the size of the island of Manhattan. Those 100,000 homes, 300,000 residents and 55 million square feet of commercial development are going to be an incredible, small, self-contained city of its own. We expect to have not just the 300,000 residents, but one and a half jobs per rooftop within Douglas Ranch. And we'll be selling our first thousand lots early next year. Now, you're selling those lots, obviously, to the big name builders. And when you talk to any builder out there, they talk about supply constraints. They talk about rising costs for materials. We just saw lumber start to spike again. You'll be working with big names like Toll Brothers, Lennar, Taylor Morrison to build these homes. Are you concerned about the pricing and what that's going to mean for this, especially if they pass it on as to the buyers? 
Well, as the largest, as the nation's largest master plan community developer, we are year in and year out among the largest sellers of land to home builders every single year. And as you mentioned, we're partnering with all of these home builders, large public builders, small private builders, delivering them the precious resource they need to execute. Today, we see that supply demand imbalance at, at, at its height. There are very few developed lots available. Phoenix is a perfect example. There's a shortage on the ground in Phoenix of 630,000 housing units and less than 40,000 finished lots on the ground to meet that demand. That supply demand imbalances put pricing into the hands of home builders. Home builders now that are reporting higher gross margins in 2020 and 2019, despite the price increases and the supply constraint issues that they've been battling like whack-a-mole for the entire year. I don't see that subsiding. We see 2022 continuing on that trend. We see right. wider margins for home builders. We see them paying full price for our land because the demand that's coming from new residents that want to move into these cities like Phoenix, David, Las Vegas, David, are incredible. Uh, welcome. Uh, what about interest rates, rising interest rates as part of that picture? Might they not dampen the home buyers, um, you know, availability of capital to spend uh, if, if, as those rise and perhaps uh, affect demand on that side, even as costs, as Diana mentioned, are rising? I think it's a great question. And the natural knee-jerk reaction is higher rates, impacts affordability, home sales, taper. I don't think that's the case. And in the past two cycles where we saw gradually increasing rates and well-telegraphed rate increases from the Fed, it's actually spurred demand. As home buyers that were thinking about moving a year from now, two years from now, move quicker because they want to get ahead of those rising rates. Again, those are subject to seeing gradual expected rate increases. When you see a rate spike, as we saw in October and November of 2019, that can pause home sales. And for 60 days, home sales really cooled off. Once buyers adjusted to that new rate environment starting in January and February of 2020, we saw that demand come right back to the market. But in big picture, if we see gradually increasing rates the way most of us are expecting throughout 2022, I think we'll see more home buyers into the market early in the year, driving further growth within the home building market. Dave, David, one, one more quick question about water. We're seeing enormous drought out west, especially from the Colorado River, and talk that Phoenix especially will be hit by a huge water shortage. How do you put up this many homes when you have that kind of a water issue? Water is incredibly important. And for us, building our communities in a sustainable, thoughtful way is absolutely paramount to our success. We have water rights in place for the entire first phase of this development and expect to secure water rates for the remainder, largely relying on the Hacienda River Basin that lies directly underneath Douglas Ranch. But we've developed a community in the okay. desert already, Summerlin outside of Las Vegas, where we've implored some of the market-leading water conservation technologies and conserve much more water than are required of us by any local regulations. It's those same market-leading technologies that we're going to apply to Douglas Ranch that are allowing us to be a market leader, conserving as much water as possible, allowing us to develop more homes than someone who's not employing close to the level of technologies that we are. Okay, David O'Reilly, thank you so much for joining us, CEO of Howard Hughes. Back to you, John. And Diana, thank you. No bigger pocketbook issue than real estate. Coming up, the pandemic fraud problem nearing $100 billion. We're going to look at what the Secret Service is doing to crack down on it. Plus, 
Julia Borston here. This is my avatar in the metaverse. Welcome to Meta's Horizon Workrooms. I'll take you around this virtual world and tell you what to expect from the metaverse that's coming up later in the show. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Welcome back to The Exchange. The Dow is up 573 points at the high markets right now. Well, all the major indices Near session highs up 1.5% or better. Here are some of the movers this hour. Boeing giving the Dow a big boost. UPS is buying 19 of its 767 freighters. Chinese stocks also rebounding today. Alibaba up despite a downgrade from Atlantic Equities. But the stock has still been more than cut in half this year. And check out Acadia Pharmaceuticals. You can see the stock popped yesterday after the bell when the company said it would resubmit its application to the FDA for a drug to treat symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. But analysts don't seem too optimistic. Mizuho saying, quote, the likelihood of success may be limited. The stock down 20 percent today. Now to Christina Parts for ACNBC News Update. Christina. Thank you, John. Here's what's happening at this hour. The NHL announcing yet another game that's been postponed due to rising COVID cases. Tonight's face-off between the Washington Capitals and the Philadelphia Flyers is being pushed back. The matchup was one of only two games set for today before the NHL starts an extended Christmas break due to COVID. Minnesota's Tim Waltz is the latest governor to test positive for the coronavirus. Waltz tweeted his wife and son have also been infected. Waltz says he has no symptoms and his wife and son only have mild symptoms. Walgreens having trouble keeping at-home COVID tests on the shelves. The drugstore chain says it's now limiting sales to four tests per customer. Walgreens calls the increase in demand unprecedented. On the news, testing whether the drug in magic mushrooms can treat depression. See why researchers are testing it on frontline health workers. Tune in tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern time. John, back over to you. Christina, thank you. Still ahead, if you act out of line, you will wait in line. That is the warning from the FAA administrator for unruly passengers. Those details next. Plus, imperfect produce at a discount. How Misfits Market is reducing food waste and lowering grocery costs. That's coming up. The Exchange. Be right back. Welcome back. Stock staging a comeback after yesterday's sell-off. Not enough yet to recoup those losses, but the Dow is up about 1.5%, as are the other major indices. Let's see. The Nasdaq up nearly 2 Let's check in with our beat reporters, Josh Lipton, Tracking the moves in semiconductors, Phil LeBeau has the big moves in airlines today, despite the COVID surges. And Robert Frank brings us a look at the young crypto investors 
powering the luxury market. Josh, let's kick it off with you and the chips. So, John, it's a good day for chip investors. If you look at the SMH, the ETF that tracks the chips, so you're in the green today. And, of course, you have to talk about Micron, which is just ripping higher in today's trade off that stronger earnings report. You know, our own Jim Cramer had that interview this morning with uh, Micron CEO Sanjay Marotra, and I thought that was a great interview and really interesting, not just for Micron investors, but chip investors in general. And Sanjay Marotra talked about some bigger trends and themes that he's saying. One is just the demand environment, and he talked about how he is seeing demand across multiple channels there. So he's seeing strong demand, he said, from, from autos to data center. He also talked, I thought, importantly about those supply chain bottlenecks, which are, of course, top of mind for our audience. And Sanjay Marocha said, listen, he's seeing those supply chain bottlenecks easing, and he thinks they're going to continue easing next year. There are some open questions, he said, certainly. Um, we're waiting to see what the economy looks like next year. We're waiting to see what the effect and impact of Omicron is, but Sanjay Marotra sounding very bullish, very confident that his company is going to be able to handle whatever is thrown at it, John. Josh, it sounds to me like so many of these chip makers are talking about 5G, uh, hyperscaler cloud, data center, uh, automotive, as you mentioned, as being important stabilizers of demand despite what might happen with the consumer. Are those the things that investors should probably pay attention to heading into 22? Yeah, and certainly Sanjay Marocha talked a lot about those big secular stories, uh, those tailwinds that he thinks Micron is very well poised to capitalize on. I think the bigger picture, John, your chip investors, they know demand is strong. They listened to those chip executives on that last round of earnings calls. They broadly sounded, I think, very positive. I do think you start to question how long the good times can last. It was really interesting. Bernstein, Stacey Rasgon, there's an analyst who's been covering the chips for a long, long time. Uh, you know, he did recently tell his clients he's still starting to feel a bit nervous here, John. He's telling him, listen, it's time if you're a chip investor, in his opinion, to commit capital to those safety stories, those secular stories, those stocks with specific catalysts. I know Dr. Rasgon thinks still for him, it's Broadcom, Qualcomm, and NVIDIA. They are still buys, John. Yeah, a lot of dependence on these big tech names, both to buy the chips on the hyperscaler side and to prop up the S&P on the investing side. Josh, thanks. Let's move on to the airlines, the NYSE index staging a big turnaround from yesterday, up about 6%. Phil Abo is digging into what's driving the action. Phil. John, a nice bounce for the airlines today, and a couple of things are taking place right now. Take a look at the big four in terms of international travel here in the U.S. We're talking about American, Delta, JetBlue because of its service into the U.K., as well as United, all of them moving higher. And why? We're not seeing the level of lockdowns that many people feared in Europe, and there is a growing sense that, well, COVID may be raging around the world. We are not seeing the same reaction that we've seen in the past when you had things like the Delta variant that was spreading around. At the same time, you're seeing the number of people who are flying domestically. It still remains strong. The numbers from yesterday, according to the TSA, down just 16% compared to the same time in 2019. All of this comes at a time when uh, the FAA is also uh, basically asking the TSA, hey, look, when it comes to unruly passengers, we want you to take those who have been fined, not just those who have been, you know, reported, complained about, but those who ultimately have been fined, about 315, put them on the you-can't-receive-TSA pre-check in the future. Whether or not that actually happens remains to be seen. That'll be up to the TSA, which is in charge of that. And one last note, take a look at Boeing and Airbus. And the reason that we're showing you these two is because the CEOs of these companies have written a letter to the head of the FAA saying, 
the altimeter rule, which is expected to go into effect on January 5th, they think that it should not go into effect, that it could impact uh, commercial airline service around the country. That is a story, John, that is going to play out over the next couple of weeks as the airlines and now the heads of Boeing and Airbus have said, this is not a good idea. You need to change the 5G uh, spectrum in certain areas because if you turn off the altimeter, you are going to impact a number of flights, many flights in different parts of the country starting January 5th. Okay. Now, Phil, I want to go back to the airlines because, interesting to me, uh, the, the CTA sent out um, a note about CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, this morning, saying the show will go on. We've got uh, tests that are yep. going to be available for attendees, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure Nevada and Las Vegas, uh, happy to hear that. But my overall question is, I imagine that's the sort of thing that's good for airlines. That's one of the biggest uh, you know, industry shows out there. Have we sure. reached perhaps the point of stability where the airlines don't have the same kind of structural vulnerabilities that they did, uh, even when we saw Delta crop up, but certainly when the pandemic initially hit? Right. Well, I go back to what Ed Bastian told us last week. Every time there is a wave of COVID-19, the impact in terms of the negative impact seems to be a little bit less each time. Do we expect to see some companies or you know, conventions or different uh, events decide we're going to put off having this take place or we're going to put off some travel. Yeah, some of that will take place. But you're also seeing people saying, you know what, we're still going through with this trip. And we're certainly seeing that during the holidays on the leisure side, whether or not we see that on the corporate side. I think that remains to be seen, but it's certainly not the level of cancellations that we saw with the Delta variant. All right, Phil LeBeau, thank you. And now the luxury market getting a boost from crypto investors. Robert Frank joins me now with those details. Robert. Well, John, luxury companies started the year betting on China for their recovery. Instead, it's the U.S. that has been the big upside surprise, thanks in large part to young crypto consumers. Now, a new report from Jeffries shows that global luxury spending has now rebounded to pre-pandemic levels, but they revised up luxury spending in North America by over $30 billion over the next three years, now expected to top $100 billion by 2023. And the biggest reason, a wave of young, wealthy super spenders using their crypto and asset wealth to buy everything from Louis Vuitton backpacks to Cartier watches. Jeffrey's saying, quote, the U.S. buyer of luxury is now younger and more affluent. And we flagged the significant surge in asset values and above all, from cryptocurrency wealth, which has increased the total of cash transactions. Now, the North American share of global luxury spending is expected to grow from 23% to 25% next year. Though China is still going to lead the world by far at over 40% of all global luxury spending. Stocks that are going to be benefit most here, LVMH, which is up 40% this year, Richemont up over 70%, and Keering up over 20%. John, this is why LVMH Chairman Bernard Arnault has added $50 billion to his personal wealth this year. Now, of course, the third richest man in the world. So, Robert, the question I got to ask is, is the whole luxury category going to be the new Robin Hood and Coinbase, where you know its fortunes are somewhat tied to the value of cryptocurrency? If we get a, a dip, a dive in the price of Bitcoin or Ether, is that going to hit luxury sales now? Well, they're certainly tied to that consumer in terms of the trends and the buying. If you look at LVMH, you look at Kieran Richmond, 
a lot of the designs and styles in there, there are streetwear. It's that young crowd. It's the explosion in designer and luxury sneakers. So they are clearly driving the design and the product growth. It's, you know, we're going to have to see how long that group stays wealthy and how long this industry can depend on them. Well, there's your pair trade on luxury, Robert Frank. <laughs> Coming up, the metaverse promises to be the next dimension. We're going to get a look at the industries already there and the ones poised to be there next. The Exchange. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. From Fortnite and Roblox to NFTs, there's big money being poured into and we're calling it the metaverse. Julia Borston joins me now with a look at the industries already there. And who's next? Julia? Well, John, we may be years away from a truly connected, immersive world, but parts of the metaverse, the tech platform that could define the future, they're already here. Mark Zuckerberg's vision of the metaverse is fully immersive with VR headsets, but people are already exploring virtual worlds without hardware. Let's build an avatar. Decentraland, which is run on Ethereum, allows anyone to build an avatar. Okay, I've got some earrings. You can explore, talk to other avatars, play blackjack in a virtual casino, and even buy digital real estate. Oh, this is where you would buy land. Companies can also buy ad space on digital billboards. Roblox isn't just a kid's game. It was an early pioneer of virtual worlds where avatars can play games or attend virtual concerts. And now you can buy digital products from big name fashion brands like Ralph Lauren to outfit your avatar. Look, I can buy a Ralph Lauren beanie for my avatar. Users can buy and then use Robux, that's the digital currency inside Roblox, to acquire these virtual goods. If you want the real virtual immersive experience, you need to have a headset. I'm wearing the Quest 2. This is the avatar I built to explore Horizon Worlds, which is the new app that Meta just launched out of beta. Meta is also working to bring remote workers into a similar virtual space. This app is called Facebook Workrooms and it's designed for meetings. It's a sign of what a professional piece of the metaverse will look like. Another promising use case for VR headsets, fitness. One of the companies leading the way is FitXR. It offers dancing, boxing, and high-intensity interval training classes, all in a virtual space. I did have a lot of fun building those avatars for each of those different virtual worlds and exploring all the different things that people are creating for them. And I went into her Meta's Horizon Worlds and Workrooms using this Oculus headset. These are the hand controllers that I was using. Pretty lightweight, a lot better than some of the early generations. This one isn't plugged in. It's, it's mm. uh, something that you don't need to be connected for. But I have to say for some of these platforms, some of these websites took a long time to load. So there is a lot of work to do, John. Well, you, you know about my metaverse narrative skepticism, though. You know, some of the stuff in there. <laughs> But does it concern you at all from the business reporter point of view that arguably the biggest cultural phenomenon in the metaverse was five years ago? It was Pokemon Go. None of this other stuff has quite hit at that level. Am I right? Oh, I think that's different. I feel like Pokemon Go was more about augmented reality and an alternate metaverse. I think I would say Fortnite and Roblox are the biggest metaverse players right now. Yeah. Well, I would still say that Pokemon Go as a cultural phenomenon was maybe even bigger than that. And it would get lumped into Metaverse if people could monetize it. <laughs> Julia, great package, thank you. Coming up, as companies and customers alike navigate supply chain and inflation issues, one startup is working to be part of the solution. That's next, The Exchange.
Be right back. If you are preparing for holiday meals this year, get ready for sticker shock. Food prices are up more than 6% from a year ago. But direct-to-consumer grocer Misfits Market can reduce those costs. It sells produce, meat, and dairy products that might not be quite up to the aesthetic standards of your typical grocery store. Think asparagus that might be too small or packaging that's a bit out of date. Joining me now is Abby Ramesh, CEO of Misfits Market. Abby, good to see you. So I imagine that maybe higher food prices overall and maybe even stay-at-home type concerns that would keep people from going out might be demand drivers for you in the past and maybe now too. Is that what you're seeing? Uh, that, is, that is exactly what we're seeing. You know, when we look at, you know, we have an interesting view into the supply chain and, and a lot of inflationary pressures that are, that are impacting food prices. And, and what we see out there is it isn't great for consumers in the short term, right? Freight prices are increasing. There's still labor shortages. Uh, the cost of stable commodities are going up, you know, double digit percentage every six months. So, you know, there, there, is, there is a lot still uh, happening on the food price rise. And the good thing about platforms like us is that one, we're digital, we're entirely e-commerce and, and you know, we bring things from farms to our fulfillment center and then take them directly to people's doorsteps. So by doing that, we're limiting the number of touch points and limiting the, the impact of that inflationary pressure. And then two, uh, we're a value provider. So we're able to kind of buy a lot of that, that food that traditionally wouldn't make it traditional retail channels and give it to consumers at a big discount compared to brick and mortar prices. But how do you avoid the, the fate of the other kind of prepared meal type providers a same similar basic idea of sending food into the home, maybe even a bit of a surprise about exactly what you'll get. I mean, what's the kind of relationship or brand value or even marketing strategy that you need to uh, build more predictability in than they've had? Yeah, it, it, for us, it's really about we're not we're not a prepared meal solution. We're not a meal kit platform. We're an online grocery store. Uh, and so when you look at our assortment, when you look at the flexibility that our customers have, uh, it is the same assortment, it's the same flexibility you would get when you walk into your grocery store online. We have you know, we have hundreds of items across categories, so you can pick and build your cart every week across produce, meat and seafood, dairy, bakery, pantry items. Um, so it's fully flexible. And importantly, I think that value proposition that value value proposition is really critical for us. Historically, a lot of the players in in food e-commerce, uh, they've been priced at a premium uh, compared to brick and mortar prices. So you you as a consumer are better off driving to the grocery store than ordering online. Our platform's different. Our prices are 30 to 50% cheaper than brick and mortar retail prices. And that we think is a, is a long-term value proposition that's still gonna win. We've seen some companies start off with subscription and even subscription only as a base, and then diversify out into allowing their customers to make more individual purchases outside of that model. How important is that kind of flexibility going forward? And do you have the capabilities logistics-wise to execute that? We do. So we view our long-term model as a blend between, you know, what we call a la carte grocery e-commerce and subscription e-commerce. And the beauty of grocery is it's one of the only categories where it is a repeat weekly behavior by default. I think a lot of consumer subscription companies have kind of fallen into the trap of forcing subscription on top of an existing channel of spend that isn't subscription by definition. Uh, the benefit of grocery e-commerce is someone's already going to the grocery store every single week, sometimes multiple times a week. And so we are able to take the, the, the great parts of a, a digital subscription and layer them on top of a repeat purchase behavior grocery shopping. What about the, um, the number of relationships that you need to continue to build out in order for this commerce to stay local? I imagine that's a part of your story in sustainability. Uh, what's your roadmap for that? 
So supplier relationships are a huge part of our business and, and we've built our supply chain from scratch. So, you know, we don't work with distributors. We work directly upstream with the farmers, the meat and seafood producers, the manufacturers on the CPG side. Um, and we work with hundreds today and we, the company has been around for three years. And that three years, we've partnered with hundreds of suppliers across the entire grocery ecosystem. That will continue to grow. Uh, and it's, you know, I'd say it's a challenging part of our business, but it's also really what we believe build a competitive moat over time uh, is the fact that we have a diversified set of suppliers across every single category. And it's also how we're going to continue to uh, expand assortment while providing value to our consumers. Looking forward to seeing how it unfolds. Abhi Ramesh, uh, founder and CEO of Misfits Market. Thank you. Coming up, the Secret Service is ramping up its fight against pandemic aid fraud. We will dig into what's being done and the eye-popping numbers next. Welcome back. Travel stocks are on the move. Let's check in with Seema Modi for a Market Flash. Hey, John, I want to draw your attention to shares of Carnival among the best performing names after CEO Arnold Donald said he's anticipating robust bookings for the second half of 2022 and into 2023 and how right now he's only seeing a small spike in cancellations due to Omicron. He also talked about therapeutics playing an important role in easing concerns around COVID at the business update yesterday. Carnival up nearly 8%. Now, earlier today, research from Truist analysts suggesting that the U.S. is likely weathering COVID headwinds better than Europe with fewer restrictions and no major lockdowns and how that will bode well for a recovery in travel in the U.S. Expedia, Airbnb, among the names Marriott, higher by 5%. John. Okay, Seema, thank you. Now, only a fraction of the pandemic relief funds have been distributed, but nearly $100 billion has been stolen from those coffers. Eamon Jabbers joins me now with what's being done to fight it. Eamon? Yeah, John, that's right. And that $100 billion that you're talking about could make this the largest fraud of all time. Law enforcement enforcement officials expect they're going to spend years clawing back as much of that money as they can. So far, the Secret Service says its investigations have led to the arrests of 100 people and the seizure of more than $1.2 billion, as well as the return of over $2.3 billion in stolen funds. As a taxpayer... Um, it kind of uh, it's, it's shameful to think that individuals would take advantage of these uh, programs that were established for people that were truly in need because of COVID-19 um, and that they would target them for their own personal you know, advantage. Now, the Secret Service announced this morning that it's appointing Roy Dotson to the new position of National Pandemic Fraud Recovery Coordinator, where he's going to coordinate all of the service's pandemic investigations. He told me he's amazed at the scale of the problem. I've been in law enforcement for over 29 years and, and worked some complex fraud investigations for you know 20 plus years, and I've never seen something at this scale. Now, John, the good news here is that the Secret Service has more than 900 active investigations into this fraud right now. And Dotson says he's been working effectively with private sector financial institutions, including PayPal, to recover all of that stolen money. Back over to you. All right, Eamon. Thank you. Wow. Quite a story. Um, And it's going to go on. Eamon Javers, thank you. That'll do it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, 
I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.